What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listener, to the 222nd chapter of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Charlie McGonagall and the Russians episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rakitansky, Julian Field, and Travis View. Folks, I don't know if you noticed, but the news cycles of today just are not as exciting as they were during the Trump years. Where's the Russian intrigue? Where are the dramatic indictments? Where's the naive insistence that powerful people will soon face justice? Fortunately for those who got into the Mueller report, we've recently been treated to a tale of a crooked FBI agent. Former counterintelligence officer Charlie McGonagall was charged for allegedly working with Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. The indictments inspired a flurry of conspiracy theories alleging that McGonagall helped tip the 2016 elections in Donald Trump's favor. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be talking with Matthias Schwartz. He's a reporter who broke the story of the federal investigation into McGonagall last year. We'll also discuss recent reassessments of how the press covered the Mueller investigation and supposed Russian influence operations. Travis, how close to outright calling Russiagate a conspiracy can I get before you send <laughs> your federal goons after me? Well, we'll see. We'll see. When I start making like a slicing motion across my throat, that means the goons are at the <laughs> okay. door. Should probably you know hold back a bit. I would I would say find a better signal. That is so clearly a death threat. Well, I could use that against you I was you in going court. to say that if if it's a very slow, deliberate finger across the throat, uh, that means you've already gone too far and Travis will kill you. So, yeah, I remember, I mean, I followed the, the Mueller investigation pretty closely when I should have been doing my actual work at uh, the my office during my day job. So I remember I, I read like the Steele dossier when that was published. That was very exciting. Didn't really amount to much, though. I read all the indictments. I became familiar with how FISA warrants work. And, you know, of course, the investigation essentially concluded that while Russia interfered in the election through hacking and covert social media campaigns and that the Trump campaign embraced the help and expected to benefit from it, there were no charges for any Trump associates for conspiring with Russians. I actually made a custom Lego kit where I recreated the hotel room of the piss tape. Oh. And I had little figures doing stuff, you know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I got the, I had the, I had to find it on eBay, but there was a uh, a Playmobil set of um, yeah. Mueller's testimony. Oh, yeah. Oh. And it was great. And it came with everybody, little Adam that's, Schiff. That's and... Little Adam Schiff. <laughs> 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 I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it in a <laughs> it derogatory way. It was perfect, brother. Playmobil, all the all the guys are They're little. They're the same Mueller. size. Very little. Yeah. Little gray hair. Little guy. Suit tie. Oh, boy. There was, um, it came with little plastic kind of uh, manila folders that you would, you know, sort of spread yeah. out in front of them on the table. So following that story, it left me, I think, pretty prepared to follow QAnon because a lot of early QAnon stuff was like was so much it was just a reaction to the Mueller investigation. Like there was like the Mueller white hat theory, which assured, you know, QAnon followers everything was going to be fine. They often talked about like the Flynn indictments and stuff, which, you know, you had to be mm -hmm. familiar with from the news if you wanted to understand the Q drops. That also gave me a taste for news that involves redacted documents and Cold War-style drama. So uh, I was delighted to read Matt Schwartz reporting on the Charlie McGonagall scandal. I was chatting with him earlier, and he seems eager to bat down misinformation that has cropped up around the story. But before we talk to him, I thought we'd go over the broad outlines of what happened. So Charlie McGonagall, former head of counterintelligence for the FBI's New York field office, was charged in two separate indictments for allegedly working with Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. 
And that's no good because Deripaska was sanctioned for interfering in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. McGonagall entered a plea of not guilty on charges in connection with violating U.S. sanctions, conspiracy, and money laundering. Prosecutors allege that McGonagall and Sergei Shestikov, a former Russian diplomat, violated U.S. sanctions by digging up dirt on Deripaska's rival. McGonagall is also charged with concealing connections he had with a person who decades earlier worked for an Albanian intelligence agency. He allegedly received $225,000 in payments for that work. Prosecutors allege that during several trips overseas to Albania, Austria, and Germany, McGonagall failed to disclose that he met with foreign nationals, including the Prime Minister of Albania and a Kosovar politician. He was a good cop until they hit him with the Havana Ray, and then, and then he was a crooked, dirty cop. In one meeting, prosecutors alleged that McGonagall urged the Prime Minister of Albania to be careful about awarding oil field drilling licenses in Albania to Russian front companies. The former Albanian intelligence employee who paid McGonagall had financial interest in the government's decision about the contracts. The indictment also implies that uh, under McGonagall's direction, the FBI opened an investigation into a U.S. citizen's foreign lobbying effort based on information he received from the former employee of Albanian intelligence. McGonagall never disclosed his financial relationship with that man. This activity proved to be very lucrative for McGonagall. Uh, One of the cash payments, that was $80,000, was allegedly given to McGonagall while he sat in a parked car outside of a restaurant in New York City. This is how I used to buy my weed, by the way, back yeah. in the uh, yeah. back in the late 90s, early 1000s. You would sit in a Home Depot parking lot. That mm. was the, oh, the yeah? parking lot of choice. You would meet a guy named Johnny, whose name wasn't really Johnny, uh-huh. and you would get some pretty trash weed. Yeah, I think car meetings are coming back. Hoping, <laughs> fingers crossed, car bombs are coming back. No, no. If You know, I mean, this is a trope. This Only is escapable a, ones. This is a, a TV trope uh, of the, uh, the special agent's car blowing up right under his feet. After McGonagall retired from the FBI in 2018, he was brought on as a consultant for a New York law firm working on Deripaska's sanctions. McGonagall traveled to London and Vienna around 2019 to meet with Deripaska and others about getting the Russian oligarch delisted from the U.S. sanctions list. McGonagall and Sheshnikov attempted to hide their involvement with Deripaska using shell companies and forged signatures to receive payments from the Russian oligarch. In 2021, McGonagall was allegedly working to obtain dark web files for Deripaska that he said could reveal hidden assets valued at more than $500 million and other information that McGonagall believed would be valuable to Deripaska. But all that activity was uh, ended abruptly in November of 2021 when the FBI seized everyone's uh, electronic devices. Oh, man, they took away all their devices. You know, I mean, this is kind of unfair. You're basically fucking with a classic retirement plan for an FBI agent, you know? Go full crooked near the end, only a couple years left, and then just go work full time as like a private intelligence guy for, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whoever will pay you. Yeah. Shit, we should hire our own FBI agent. Maybe he could do something for the podcast. What would you have our crooked FBI agent that we hired do first? Um... I don't know. Sick him on all of my enemies? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Give me a list. Let's go. We are now joined by Mattathias Schwartz, a senior correspondent at Insider. He broke the story of the federal investigation into McGonagall last year, and his reporting has offered the most detailed account of the affair. His most recent report is headlined, The FBI's McGonagall Labyrinth, and is real spy novel stuff. Mattathias, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really fascinating reporting. Oh, happy to be here, Travis. Thanks for having me. 
So we've already covered some of the broad outlines of the story. And before we like go into the actual indictments themselves, I wonder if you could help us understand the cast of characters. And we're going to start with Charlie McGonigal himself. Now, I've read that part of what makes this case so shocking is that McGonigal was not a low-level agent. So how would you uh, characterize his career at the FBI? So uh, Charlie McGonigal had an incredible career at the FBI. He's a super high-ranking FBI official. Um, he, he, the final job he had before retiring was special agent in charge of counterintelligence in the New York City field office. Now that's a mouthful, but basically he was in charge of figuring out who all the spies in New York City were and what they were up to and whether they could be recruited to, you know, help the U.S. somehow uh, and just to gather intelligence in New York City, which is one of the world's spying capitals. So he had access to all kinds of intel um, from across the U.S. intelligence community. He was doing stuff with NYPD. He was leading a team of 150 guys who were all FBI special agents and doing this work of, of basically chasing and trying to flip spies. Yeah, it was really fascinating the way you talked about the way that New York acted as a real intelligence hub, a global intelligence hub. It just you make it sound uh, a lot like you know there are like shady meetings and deals, you know, and um, you know information being passed um, across like you know fancy restaurants and like you know in, in streets and stuff. Yeah, it's just really yeah, interesting. yeah. You've got all the money. You got the money. You've got the United Nations, which is a huge spine hub. I mean, being a diplomat all over the world is is for most countries cover for a lot of intelligence intelligence operatives. Um, you've got all the heads of state who come in for the big UNGA meeting. Um, and then you've got Wall Street and finance and all people from all over the world looking to hire financial services and park money in real estate. So it's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on there under the surface. And one of the fascinating things about this, this story for me is the way that, that we get these little glimpses of this kind of New York City shadow world. People are calling it the new Vienna. Yeah? No, I don't know. <laughs> I just know Vienna also has that reputation. I mean, it is like where everybody goes to spy on each other. and Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And this is like, this, this gets us straight to Russiagate. If you're, you know, if you're selling luxury condos in New York City, you know, for top dollar, of course, you're going to be dealing with Russians. Of course, some of them are going to have ties to the FSB. I mean, you can't, it's not, it's not necessarily deliberate. I mean, that's just what, that's part of what New York City is and has been for, you know, 10 or 15 years now. Now, in your reporting, you spoke to a woman who had an affair with McGonagall, Alison Guerrero. She says that she was misled and didn't know that McGonagall was married. And as you describe in your reporting, an affair for an FBI agent isn't a totally private matter. Why is that? Uh, well, in, in theory, if not everyone knew about the affair, it's something that people who did know about it could use and hold over uh, an FBI special agent as leverage. This was, you know, the what what one of the sticks that people pointed at Trump with the dossier or the Russia trip with the Miss Universe pageant. That if he'd engaged in some sort of, you know, some sort of sexual activity, which was never proven, um, probably didn't happen. But uh, it, people were saying, oh well, well that would be compromised. He would be compromised because he'd be so scared of it coming out. Uh, and then FBI agents are subject to even stricter controls. Every five years, they have to take a polygraph is my understanding. And, and these kinds of personal matters, including, you know, potentially extramarital affairs are, are stuff that an examiner gets into in a polygraph. Wow. Um, so, and this is also something that uh, Charlie McGonigal, given his position, should have been really adept at knowing that this is 
something that foreign intelligence services could use to, you know, get leverage over over you. So so he would have more of a reason to be careful than most. Now, Alison Guerrero had a lot of ties to New York City law enforcement, so he may have felt that she was sort of a trusted and trusted and vetted member of the circle he was already in socially. So maybe he made a carve out in his mind for it or who knows? Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it sounds like she, he was, um, McGonagall was lying to both his wife and his mistress, which seems like a bad idea when you're doing some like, you know, underhanded sanctions breaking activity with Russians. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to know. I mean, it could be just sort of like a classic updike, you know, midlife crisis kind of scenario where in his head, he thinks that this is that, that he might, you know, actually get divorced. And so that's what he's telling the person, you know, who knows what he thought at the time. I mean, there's sort of a version of the story where he was, you know, being sincere enough in real time and only sort of deceptive to her in retrospect. But this claim that Allison made that he lied to her and said that they were going to get married someday. A lot of people backed her up on that who I talked to, people who knew both of them. And her dad uh, backed her up on that, too. I talked to him. And he said that, you know, that was his understanding that he'd actually met Charlie McGonagall. So this is not just, you know, it's something she says, but it's not just hanging on her word. You know, other people remember remember this being the case at the time also. The other main character in the story is the 55-year-old Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. And people who follow the coverage of the Mueller investigation are probably already familiar with Deripaska. Uh, as you note in your reporting, uh, Deripaska's name appears in the Mueller report 63 times. A bipartisan report by the Senate Intelligence Committee found that Deripaska conducted influence operations and that he took direction on some of those operations from the Russian government. So what is really relevant um, about Deripaska's background for the story? So as you're alluding to with the Mueller report, Oleg Deripaska is supposed to be the big bad wolf of Russiagate. He is supposed to be the person that was as close as we got to collusion, um, which would have been the meeting between Konstantin Kalimnik and Paul Manafort at the Grand Havana Room, where Manafort, uh, as he admitted to me, gave Kalimnik internal Trump campaign polling data. And then Kalimnik, according to the intelligence community, passes this on um, to Deripaska and uses it to settle a debt that, um, that Manafort had to Deripaska or that Manafort says Deripaska had to him. They had a dispute about money. Now, and then if you believe the, the United States Treasury Department and the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, and, and I think they're due a certain amount of deference, Oleg Deripaska really is a bad guy. They say he was, you know, taking direction from the Kremlin, that he was involved in these influence operations, that he, I think, was involved in the murder of a, a businessman somehow. Now, all the evidence backing this stuff up is classified. We only get the conclusions. But out of Russiagate and the Mueller report, you kind of get this like good and evil narrative where you've got kind of James Comey hewing to the, you know, the righteous side. And then you've got Trump, who's this dirty double dealer who's mixed up with all these murderous Russians. Um, however, meanwhile, James Comey is actually appointing and handpicking Charlie McGonigal to lead the counterintelligence operation in the New York City field office. And then you have Charlie McGonigal going on to take money from Oleg Deripaska. So this allegation, um, you know, which, which McGonagall's now been indicted for, really complicates this sort of good and evil binary where, where, where Trump is doing things that are beyond the pale that no one would ever, ever think of doing. Um, and it really calls into question, well, how bad is Deripaska? How abnormal was it to be doing business or having an association with him? We know that in 2014, the FBI was actually trying to recruit Deripaska as an informant 
Uh, and as a, a as someone who's cast as a villain, Deripaska is, is very interesting because he's very insistent that he's not the big bad wolf. And I've been corresponding with um, with his press team quite a bit. And they ask for a lot of changes to the articles. And they, they say that none of these allegations are true. And he's really interested in trying to like rehabilitate his image in the West. You know, he's had real estate in London and New York and Washington that he's lost access to as as relations between the US and Russia have soured. And he, and he wants to try and get back in to, to the West's good graces and is trying to push back on all these things that the U.S. government is saying about him. And McGonagall, his hiring of McGonagall was part of this kind of full court press um, in 2018, right before the U.S. sanctioned him, where Deripaska was basically just blasting out money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars to crisis communications guys, investigative firms, lawyers all across New York and London. We're getting money from Oleg Deripaska to try and burnish his image and keep him from being sanctioned. And it didn't work, but a lot of people got paid. And Charlie McGonagall, according to the Southern District of New York, was one of these people. Now, the final main character in the story is Sergei Shestikov, a former Russian diplomat. So what is his deal? So Sergei Shestikov was the chief of staff to the Soviet Union's um, ambassador to the United Nations. So this is a guy, if he wasn't part of Russian intelligence, he certainly had had Russian intelligence ties. Mm. Now... I don't know how he first met Charlie McGonagall. That's something I'm trying to report out. I think it's a very interesting question. But eventually, Shestikov uh, becomes a U.S. citizen and becomes a translator for the Southern District of New York. And then he becomes, and then at a certain point, he's acquainted with with Charlie McGonagall. And we know from Allison Guerriero's account that uh, Shestikov and McGonagall would have dinner. And at these dinners, three or four times, Allison witnessed um, Sergei Shestikov, the former you know, diplomat for the Soviet Union, uh, handing Charlie McGonagall envelopes, uh, manila mm. envelopes that look like they contain documents, not the kind of envelopes that would contain cash, like a thin manila envelope. Now, what was in the envelopes? Uh, we don't know. Uh, Shestikov is McGonagall's co-defendant. So he was setting up uh, some of this business that McGonagall is, was alleged uh, to have been doing with Deripaska. He was kind of one of the, the go-betweens and who was also making money off of these deals with Deripaska uh, and was connecting him with one of Deripaska's employees, a guy by the name of Evgeny Fokin, uh, who runs one of Deripaska's companies in London or helps run it and also has reputed to have ties to Russian intelligence. So, you know, if you if you sort of take a Russiagate type of lens, a Mueller report or Maddow type of lens, you know, <laughs> to this um, to this fact chain, um, as, as some people have, you would you would see like a vast, you know, Russian intelligence operation that that had fully penetrated the FBI. And and that, you know, that's not impossible. That's kind of like a worst case scenario here. But, you know, McGonagall and Chesikov haven't been charged with espionage. And we don't know exactly what was going on. It's possible that everything in the envelopes uh, was totally above board. But it looks, you know, from what we know, it's it, it's super sketchy. Well, and also, you know, when you use names like, uh, you know, connected to like the intelligence agencies and like, you know, the the secret meetings where like envelopes were exchanged, you know, the only I mean, uh, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but but the only archetype I have for that those kind of things happening is in like spy movies or or, you know, uh, you know, uh, a Tom Clancy video game or something. And so it's really hard not to, you know, because in the movies, it's because everybody's guilty. There is a conspiracy, you know, that's, you know why the movie is exciting and so it's really hard to hear all of these names and these types of actions and the connections and not automatically just assume that it is leading up to what you said the the worst case scenario or the or you know or in other words the most exciting uh you know scenario yeah i mean you know another another you know (laughs) perhaps more realistic scenario is that this was just sort of flirting 
and that they were trying to see, or that you know, Deripaska or, or or one of someone in McGonagall's world was trying to see how far they could push him and what they could get out of him, and that mm-hmm. you know, it's possible that the U.S. government got onto this and cut it off while it was still at first base or second base. You know, the FBI has been pushing back on a lot of the reporting that's come out, and they've been trying to say that, well, like it's not it's not espionage; it's just a case of greed. But it do- it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can it can it can absolutely be both. So, I mean, if if we can't, you know, jump to the worst case scenario uh, right now, but what what exactly is McGonagall accused of actually doing, according to the indictments? So he's accused of taking, the biggest thing he's accused of doing is taking about half a million dollars in money from Oleg Deripaska um, through a sort of cutout corporation. But after uh, Oleg, this was, this was in 2019, this is after Oleg Deripaska was sanctioned by the U.S. government, and it was illegal to take any money from him, which Charlie McGonagall, um, who, according to the indictments, had seen some of the underlying intelligence that led to Deripaska being indicted. No one would have known that better than Charlie McGonagall. So he was taking money, a lot of it, uh, from a Russian oligarch that was illegal for him to take. He's also accused of lying on uh, a bunch of his FBI paperwork about trips that he took to Albania and elsewhere, um, where he said he was doing official business, but he had some unofficial business mixed in as well. And he was also having his flights and his hotels comped by some of his business associates. And he did not disclose any of this on his official FBI travel forms. So he's also charged with lying on these government forms. Oh, McGonagall thought he was above the law, planning his retirement. Yeah, no, it's a little, it's a little strange, you know, like, uh, you know, what, what did he, did he think he could get away? You know, it's, it's either very brazen or very stupid, or he thought he could just kind of like fix it somehow, or there were other people involved and he thought he was, it was above board. Could he really be that dumb? That's sort of like a question that a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of, I'm asking a lot of people have said, like, can he actually have been this dumb to have done this or, or, or does there have to kind of be something else here? You know, but no, I like I like the way I like the way you put it. I should, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. If I've if I've learned one thing from this podcast, you know, as long as we've been doing it, uh, it's that you'll find that people just because somebody is at a very high ranking position in the government or law enforcement does not mean that they can't also be incredibly dumb. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I guess here's the scary thing, right? Like, is this what passes for normal in the FBI now? Yeah. Like, what 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 question. what else did McGonagall witness that led him to believe that this sort of thing wouldn't attract notice? Yeah, I mean, some of the pushback from the FBI is probably just trying to convince people that they are actually more airtight than they look uh, from this. Right. I guess, yeah, I guess I would imagine it's like, it's like you you say, like, you know, the head of counter intel at the New York field office. Like, it's like, man, this guy must be a master at OPSEC. He must, you know, must like, you know, always make sure he's not being followed and lock down all of his devices and not doing things that would like, you know, make his romantic partners extremely mad at him. But uh, that wound up uh, not being the case. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like you could make a good argument that this guy was, uh, at a minimum, uh, overpromoted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's sort of the best case scenario, right? But yeah. 
Maybe he failed up like I have at most jobs. You know, yeah. that's yeah. I always think about this kind of stuff that you know, even though there there is so much you know prestige, I think assigned to a lot of these institutions, it's like still a job. Like you still have some yeah. coworkers who like you're cool with, some coworkers who you're not. You have ways that you know to kind of skirt around the rules if you've been there long enough. You know, uh, you know somebody who you know if you're working at J Crew say, and you know guy across the street is working at a Hollister, uh, you you can have lunch together and have a good. You yeah. know, it's there's no there's no love lost. Plus, if you you know you're like, hey, I, I had a good career, you know, and this is not to say he was you know clean before this, but maybe he's like, yeah, it's reaching the end. Maybe I'll you know bank a couple millions from doing some shady stuff before I exit. Yeah, this is what happened at the end of Training Day. Well, not at the end of Training Day, but like it's one of the main plot points what? is that there's this <laughs> there's this senior detective who uh-huh. has essentially like done a really like dirty deal that's essentially going to break him off, you know, enough money that he can sort of live for the rest of his life or go, you know, live somewhere tropical. I mean, you know, same thing basically, except he gets killed by Denzel Washington. Yeah, like Washington, Carlito's so. way too, right? Like it's yeah, like yeah, one exactly. More. One more. Just one. So and then I'm basically, out. Yeah. We're, one more and then I'm out. So basically, we're blaming African Americans and Hispanic people when no. really it's the Irish Americans we had to worry about the whole time. <laughs> one of the interesting things that McGonagall is accused of doing is meeting with someone who worked for an Albanian intelligence agency and meeting with the prime minister of Albania. And uh, I have to confess, I don't quite know how Albania plays the geopolitics. So why would they be interested in meeting with an ex-FBI agent? Uh, well, I think, you know, let me, let, me, let me think about that for a second. Why would, why would high-ranking Albanians be interested in meeting with, a, with an FBI agent? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about this in Albania right now. Clearly, well, it, it seems from the indictments that McGonagall was holding himself out as like a high-ranking American U.S. intel official who oh. knew a lot of stuff and, and could get stuff done. He bragged once that to someone that he'd met Angela Merkel. I don't know if that's true or not, but I mean, I think, you know, he, I think for, it, it, it's not, he, I wouldn't say the Prime Minister of Albania is like out of his league or anything. And if he claims he can get stuff done, um, he probably would be, you know, like a, a person of interest. It's possible that he met, he, he could have met the Prime Minister who, you know, in New York at one of these UN events. I don't know if that, if that happened or not. What's clear is that he had this Albanian friend in New York, uh, this guy, Agron Neza, who, according to the indictments, gave him bags and bags of cash and kind of served as his fixer for for these Albanian meetings where he performed all kinds of um, different services and, and and lobbying allegedly for the uh, for the Albanian p- prime minister in a circle. I also sort of feel like if there's kind of like a a dirty uh, like high ranking FBI official that other countries or other intelligence or, or whoever kind of be like oh yeah well there's this like kind of dirty guy who's like willing to get you and he's not afraid to break rules I, I feel like you know that becomes a, a very attractive person that you want to meet to see if may hey maybe there's something that can be done yeah that's something I've wondered is you know reporting on this like if this guy had a shingle out there would have been like a real long, a, pr- a pretty long line. Yeah, to, to to get in on some of that if he was like delivering at all. So you know, yeah. is there is there more? I think it's a question worth asking. You know, and it's possible that they they have more. It's possible the government knows more and they're holding it back because they, they 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 there's something that they want out of him for it. You know, that mm. that's just a scenario. Yeah. My conspiracy theory is that the Albanians were trying to rehab their image after the Taken films uh, because uh-huh. these guys are these guys yeah. are portrayed as like, you know, child traffickers and all this stuff. I mean, they're the bad guys consistently in every Taken movie, you know, so maybe they were uh-huh. trying to sure to rehab oh. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Travis, get us back on track. 
So how did McGonagall get caught? I mean, how long was the FBI on to what he was doing? Because like we said, th- despite the fact that he was supposedly a seasoned counterintel official, uh, he, he didn't cover his tracks very well. So what exactly did him in? Do we know that? Uh, I do know a little bit about that. And I, I, I did a bunch of digging into this question. It turns out that in 2018, McGonagall went to London. And when he was in London, he met a high-ranking Russian who was under surveillance. The British were already surveilling this Russian. Now, this Russian may or may not have been Oleg Deripaska. I don't know either way, but he was important enough for the British to be to be surveilling him. And then McGonagall met with this person, and then the British were alarmed. And they were like, what's going on here? We weren't informed of this. Uh, and they called up the U.S. Embassy, and they said, what's going on? And then the U.S. was like, oh, we didn't, they didn't know about it. So that, according to my reporting, was part of the reason, part of the predication for the FBI opening an investigation into McGonagall. Now, McGonagall left the FBI in September of 2018. We don't know if this meeting with the Russian happened before or after he left. But it seems, uh, from what I know, that the FBI needed this tip from the British in order to, that was... It, I don't know this for certain, but it seems quite likely that that was, that was the first they heard that there might be an issue with this guy. That's, I mean, that's kind of crazy. I don't know. It's like, again, he's like, he sh- you'd think he would know that uh, this this individual would be surveilled considering his counterintel background. But I guess it was just uh, one of the sloppy mistakes. Yeah, no, no. It, it goes back to that same question. Could he really have been this dumb or is there something else going on here? I mean, he does... There is something in the indictments where he talk, where he's doing a favor for one of the oligarch's associate's daughters. And he explains to his supervisor, I'm doing this because I'm trying to recruit this guy as a source. So maybe he, maybe that, that was the story he was telling himself. You know, just like he was telling himself, hypothetically, I'm going to marry my girlfriend, Allison, and leave my wife. He may have been telling himself, I'm not really going to work for the Russians. I'm just trying to find out what they're all about so I can recruit them as a source as a part of my work as a super spy. I mean, that could have been, you know, one of one of one of the number of things that would be going through his head. But we know he eventually took the money. He took half a million dollars from Deripaska illegally. And before you do that as an FBI agent or as an ex-FBI agent, before you do something illegal, you have to file a piece of paper with the attorney general and you have to get someone from DOJ <laughs> to sign off and say, okay, you can do this illegal thing because it's part of your investigation for X, Y, Z, and we know about in advance, so now your ass is covered. He didn't do that. So by the time he took this 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 half a million dollars, he he definitely if indeed he did do that, it's just an allegation. But you know, he he that that's really crossing a line. You're not you're not like trying to recruit someone anymore, you're just getting paid. Yeah, like that can't be a real thing, right? Where you would like like you would go to the DOJ and they'd be like, oh, you know what? Like this would be a pretty good get for us, so you know what? Enjoy that. That's a that's a half a million dollar bonus. Like, does that really happen? <laughs> well, I don't think. I mean, I think hypothetically, maybe like they might sign off on a on a meeting. You know? Yeah. I, but 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 that that it doesn't seem like that happened. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way that they would let somebody get you know just like personally enrich themselves by doing something you know that even even if it did sort of further the the agenda of the the bureau. Right. I mean, I'm sure something like that has happened that you would think, but I would assume they would put the money in escrow or something or yeah, give it back yeah. at the end of the process. Or let's 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 hope maybe this is me being a little bit naive, you know, in my. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows how these things, you know, it's, it, yeah. it's all pretty. It's all pretty arcane. I know yeah. from another piece, actually, too. This is a different piece. I was I was writing about someone who claimed to be a CIA asset and 
they'd had some contacts with the CIA, but they they really wanted to make it seem like they were an operative. And they wanted to use that as part of their legal defense, was my understanding. But the CIA can actually call DOJ, and they, this happens sometimes, and they'll say, this is one of our guys, please like, don't charge him with this and that, because he was doing it for us. And this, this has happened before, they do it every so often. But the guy I'm talking about was kind of you know, full of shit. It wasn't really true in this. Yeah. He, did, he didn't get one of these special get out of jail free cards. But the, but the card does exist. That's what, that, that was the point of that anecdote. There is a CIA get out of jail free card that does from time to time let people do you know, bad things on, on an ends justify the means basis and, and, and then get charged and then DOJ will agree to turn a blind eye to it if they feel like on a cost benefit analysis, that's what you know, ought to happen. That makes sense um, to me. Sorry, I feel like this is turning to like lawfare or, or something. I'm getting very. Are you kidding? Uh, no, I have like a thousand. Qu- I have to like I have to like actively mute myself to make sure Travis gets his questions in. Just fascinated, fascinated by all this in the same way that most people are. Uh, you know, it is like a a real world sort of spy story and and everything that that entails. Yeah, no, I mean, people at this level just aren't supposed to get caught. I mean, that's what it. <laughs> that's what yeah. this. The one reason why this has gotten so much attention. Whatever they're doing, we're sort of never supposed to learn about it, right? Um, and something, something in the order of things broke down here, and everyone's trying to kind of figure out exactly what that was. This case has sparked a lot of conspiracy theories. It's also inflamed a lot of like partisan grievances over the 2016 election and subsequent investigation into the Trump campaign. So I was hoping you can help us like clarify what is and is not known about the case. You mentioned that, for example, that you, we can't like rule out the possibility that there's like some sort of espionage component to this case. But I mean, is there any reason to believe that or is that pure speculation at this point? I mean, it is pure speculation at this point, but it's not the craziest speculation. We know from the indictments that McGonagall met with Deripaska in Vienna and in London. That's stated in the indictments. And if he talked to Deripaska about any classified information, including this is the classified uh, intelligence, which is the reason that you might be sanctioned or have been sanctioned, Mr. Deripaska, that would be espionage. He would be, I believe, at least that's my understanding, that would that could be construed as espionage. You're giving up classified information to someone who's like a, you know, an agent of a foreign government, according to the Treasury Department. So it's not, it's speculation, but it's not like the biggest leap. Um, But maybe when you say espionage, you're meaning more like, I'm like performing queries for Vladimir Putin direct into the FBI database and handing the envelopes or something like, I mean, that's, that would be a bigger leap. Yeah, well, yeah, because like I, I was like, there's some precedent uh, for like an FBI agent like being like a double agent for Russian intelligence. There was a case of, like Robert Hansen, who was convicted in 2001 of that crime, right? And uh, he is going to spend the rest of his life in uh, you know a supermax prison for that. That's a very very serious charge. But uh, McGonagall, he was released on half a million dollars bail. So doesn't that suggest that he's not really that much of a flight risk? So he's not under threat of that. La- that kind of like serious prison time? Yeah, no, a lot of uh, folks who know a lot more about the federal justice system than I do have said that the fact they let him out on bail means that they don't feel like they've got, you know, they don't think there is an espionage risk here. Uh, It's just a very, very hard um, scenario to completely rule out. I would really want to know a little more about his relationship with Shestikov before I rule it out personally. Uh, This is just me and my my own tinfoil hat. 
But it's very possible that they let him out on bail because they wanted to see where he was going to go walk to, who he was going to have coffee with. And they, they didn't want to, you know, <laughs> they wanted to, like, uh, keep observing him in the in the wild, so to speak, because uh, they had their own questions that they the, the, the government had their own questions. They felt that it would be easier for them to get answers with him out. But I think, yeah, we don't know that it was espionage. And it's reasonably likely that he was just being kind of groomed and his various patrons were seeing how much mileage they could get out of him for how much money. And that there was a, a risk that something might happen in the future, but that nothing had happened yet. That's a, that's a very, you know, defensible way of, you know, kind of looking at what we know. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that was kind of like confusing to me, or less unclear to me, was who exactly, I guess, what McGonagall was serving in his relationship with Deripaska. Because like you mentioned, Deripaska has his own particular business interests. He wants to like, you know, um, become, have a better image of the West. You know, he's described as being a member of Putin's inner circle, but he's also like kind of strayed from the official state line in some ways. For example, he's criticized yeah. the invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has cost him in in Russia. But I mean, that naturally raises the question. So I mean, did McGonagall's relationship with Deripaska make him an agent of the Kremlin or merely an agent of Deripaska's personal business interests? Yeah, no, no, that's a really good question. You know, and it, it, it raises the question going back to the, you know, Manafort Kalimnik meeting. Is Kalim, is Konstantin Kalimnik actually a Russian spy? Should we believe the government's, should we take the U.S. government at their word um, that he is an, an asset of the Kremlin? Because that's all we really have to go on. They haven't given us the underlying evidence of Deripaska's Kremlin ties or Kalimnik's Kremlin ties. And Deripaska, it seems, is, is, is somewhere in the middle. And his views on Russia have moved around over the years. And clearly in 2014, um, the U.S. thought he was close enough to us that we could should take a shot at, at, at trying to win him over. Now, that didn't work, but it's, yeah. We don't, we don't, that's, that's a really big question here. Like, what was McGonagall paid for? According to the indictments, it was for opposition research on, uh, on one of uh, Deripaska's rivals. And that's something that Deripaska does a lot. He hires law firms and due diligence firms to try and gain leverage on his various business partners because he feels like he's not getting enough money out of them or whatever. And it, it could very well have, have been, you know, nothing more than that. There could be no, you know, Kremlin aspect to it at all. It could entirely be like a, a private business matter with someone who, you know, the, our government said you're, it's illegal to do bi any business with. Hmm. I want to ask you about the alleged involvement that McGonagall had in Crossfire Hurricane. This is the, um, the FBI counterintelligence investigation into in 2016-2017 uh, that looked into whether Trump and members of his campaign were working with uh, Russian, the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 election. So I did read that according to the DOJ Inspector General's report on the FISA applications of Carter Page, McGonagall was involved in forwarding the tip from the Australians to D.C. headquarters regarding possible Russian involvement in the Trump campaign. So given that, is there any reason to believe that he like influenced the FBI investigation in a malicious way? Uh, there's no evidence that he influenced the FBI investigation uh, in a malicious way. He was, um, you know, as, as you've laid out, kind of present at creation for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation and handled this uh, essential incoming tip from, you know, from an Australian diplomat about George Papadopoulos that at least according to the official version of Crossfire Hurricane, this is when the FBI really started looking at, at, at Trump's Russia ties. So he is kind of like this Zelig-like figure, McGonagall, like popping up at these like crucial points in the the Russiagate saga. But there's nothing to suggest that he, you know, uh, threw the case for a loop or sabotage it in any way. My understanding is he did not have any kind of role 
and Mueller's team, you know, Mueller had a whole team of people who were grinding on this for years. And, and I don't think McGonagall, had he been tasked with sabotaging Crossfire Hurricane, which I don't think he was, I don't think he would have been capable of doing so. Uh, if you look at just how much scrutiny was impli- was applied to Trump Russia, of, you know, for, for, for years and years and years, it would take much more than one guy to derail that uh, and to keep the people who were digging on that from, you know, finding whatever they wanted. I mean, just the amount of paper, you can see this from Jason Leopold's FOIAs, the number of FBI 302 forms. It's just thousands and thousands of pages and, and, and labor and like, you know, he had, a, he had a job to do in the meantime. So I don't think this idea of him being a Russian plant that we would have gotten, we would have pinned down Trump collusion, but for Charlie McGonagall, I think is a pretty, <laughs> right. pretty, uh, pretty silly hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, he already sounds super sloppy, even just going into this, you, you, you know, the, you know, we, we've been talking about this, you know, almost, almost the entire episode, how it's like, was he really this dumb? So it's, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to believe at least that a guy who is so sloppy in this other way was you know the mastermind who like never got caught somehow in like derailing all of Mueller's uh you know lawyers and and researchers and all of that well I think I mean there's a lot of people who are really emotionally invested in the Trump Russia narrative and who were unsatisfied by Mueller's report were unsatisfied on where the facts are landed and are sort of desperately looking for that missing piece that will allow them to provide some evidence to support with what they believed all along, which is that Trump is some sort of uh, witting Russian agent who takes his orders directly from the Kremlin, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, a hypothesis that some people have just simply will will not let go of and will, I mean, it's, that's, that, that's one thing about McGonagall, the, the story that's interesting to me is that people are, are willing to go to such lengths to, to use him to try and make that true when it's, um, it's just such a stretch. It is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of like, you know, serious people have made some really kind of crazy accusations uh, that he, that McGonagall may have actually like harmed the presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton. Like you mentioned in your story, this was kind of insinuated by Timothy Snyder, Yale historian. There's also a lot of insinuations made by uh, Senator Whitehouse in a letter to Attorney General Garland. So Jake, could you read this, this, uh, this letter, please? Yeah, absolutely. Because McGonagall was the special agent in charge of the FBI's New York Field Office Counterintelligence Division in the weeks leading up to the 2016 election, he may have knowledge or have participated in political activities to damage then-candidate Hillary Clinton and help then-candidate Donald Trump. For instance, during that time period, Rudy Giuliani announced that a, quote, big surprise related to Secretary Clinton would be forthcoming from the FBI, hinting he received that information from the New York Field Office. The very next day, Director James Comey, reportedly bowing to internal pressure from that office, broke the FBI's ordinary policy of declining to comment on ongoing matters close to an election and announced that the FBI would reopen its investigation into Secretary Clinton's use of a private email server in light of the discovery of emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop. I feel like I've stepped into a time machine that has taken me back uh, right into 2016 (laughs) all over again. Yeah. So yeah, Senator Whitehouse, he doesn't make any outright allegations there, but what do you make of like the insinuations there that he was like possibly responsible for the, uh, you know, the Giuliani leaks? Well, I may have been inadvertently responsible for pouring some gas on this because Allison Guerrero, who's, who's, you know, the big source for a lot of the, you know, not, not my only source, but is like her account 
is kind of the spine of a couple of the longer stories I wrote. She has a relationship of some kind with Rudy Giuliani. They're friends Mm. um, and they've known each other for a while. And people have used that to sort of make a leap and assume that, that, okay, well then she must have been the one who leaked this information. You know, it must have come from McGonagall. I really don't think that's true just kind of having been immersed in the texture of this up close. I mean, one thing to keep in mind with Giuliani is, you know, he worked, you know, he worked for the Southern District of New York. He was the mayor. He's, you know, been in New York law enforcement circles for decades. The number of contacts he has at the New York City field office, which has 2,000 employees. I mean, he doesn't need a Charlie McGonigal. He's got you know, dozens and dozens of guys that he's close to. I mean, I think the inspector general found that four FBI agents had been, you know, in touch with his office at various times. I think they found that through phone records. So it's not impossible that McGonagall was the source of the leak. I just think it's very, very, very unlikely. And Allison's account, Allison's a very pro-Trump MAGA person who still believes, you know, we, we have some, some substantial disagreements about how the last election turned out you know, among other things. But, um, you know, she gave me an account of McGonagall's politics and his politics seem pretty, you know, pretty lukewarm. He doesn't seem to be so pro-Trump or pro-Hillary. He did not strike her as like a political firebrand. Now, of course, she could just be telling me that because this whole thing is some sort of op uh, and I'm just incredibly naive and believe everything I'm told and don't, don't, don't check it all. But a lot, a lot of, you know, the important aspects of her account to me, they, they did check out. And I think she's telling me, the truth. And I don't think that McGonagall, from what I can tell, was interested in putting his finger on the scale politically on one way or the other. Well, it also doesn't seem like anything McGonagall did uh, either forced or prevented the FBI from announcing that they were opening that investigation in the first place. So that that information would have come out anyway. So yeah, yeah, no, no, I haven't. Um, you know, that's 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 right. That's right. He has a super fascinating story. I'm sure it'll uh, keep unfolding in the coming months and years. But um, I also wanted to get your perspective on Russian influence operations, because you also reported about a Russian troll farm based in Mexico. You discovered the details of a company called Social CMS, which is actually run by a Russian warlord named Yevgeny Prigozhin. And he happens to be the guy who founded the notorious Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. Uh, briefly, so what did you discover about the operations of Social CMS? So at Insider, working with um, some other publications, including Politico and this uh, new German newspaper, Welt, we got this vast, vast tranche of documents from inside of Prigozhin's operation. Um, and they showed us, you know, there are letters between that he sent to Bashar Assad during the Syrian war, asking for medals for his Wagner Group mercenaries. There are requests for rebates on cargo ships that he purchased for the Russian Navy. And there are all these detailed budgets and invoices for influence operations around the world, including subcontractors in Mexico. So I was actually able to get on the phone with someone who had unwittingly been one of these Prigozhin influence operation subcontractors and was posting on to Instagram about feminism, about Hispanic positive thinking memes, about Black (laughs) Lives Matter during the run-up to the 2020 election. And then um, the FBI got onto this and shut it down shortly before the election. They let Facebook know about it and Facebook shut it down. But this whole story kind of goes against the prevailing kind of like Matt Taibbi, Twitter files, 
where like there's no such thing as foreign inter- in- interference. And uh, whenever the government and big tech are working together, they're plotting to do evil and snuff out free speech. Now, I think some of the Twitter file stuff has been quite useful, especially Lee Fang's report about, um, you know, what, what the Department of Defense was doing in the Middle East with, um, you know, using inauthentic accounts to spread pro-American propaganda, essentially. However, um, this doesn't mean that there aren't actually like bad people out there using the Internet to do bad shit and that the government is within its rights to put their foot down sometimes and, you know, tell the platforms what they've discovered. That's clearly what happened here. So I don't, did that, I don't, <laughs> did that answer your question or yeah? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really, yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I, it is really interesting to hear about the continuation of these Russian operations in like, you know, 2020 and beyond, because it seems like we're in the middle of like a kind of reassessment of what exactly happened with regards to Russian influence and Russian operations in 2016. And this has come first, uh, first and foremost in the form of a, this massive 24,000 word report in the Columbia Journalism review all the media's reporting on alleged Trump-Russia links. So the report is very controversial, not very flattering to the press. It, it talks about, for example, the press's overly credulous treatment of the Steele dossier, which uh, made a lot of sensational claims about Trump and Russians, which turned out to be either inaccurate or unverifiable. So I'm curious, you know, as someone who like breaks stories related to these Russian operations, what do you make of that CGR report and the reporting that was done during the Mueller investigation? The reporting, I'm sorry, the reporting that was done during the Mueller, oh, you mean like the what the media was doing during the Mueller investigation? I just want to understand yeah, the yeah, yeah. the question. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the CJR piece, I liked it. I think it got a lot of important things right, and they were things that no one said yet. One is just the role of Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS. This guy was everywhere in 2016. The number of high-level meetings he had with top editors at every brand name publication. I'm not going to say the specific names, but I know this, you know, firsthand, secondhand, that guy was spreading a ton of stuff and had a massive footprint on how Trump was covered. And no one's really, you know, until I read the CJR piece, I had not seen anyone pin the tail on the donkey. Another thing that Girth gets right is is uh, the Russian narrative and the Cambridge Analytica narrative. They're, they were good business for the media. People ate them up. And the media has been shifting, and me being part of the media, to a traffic-based model where you give the people what they want. People love these stories. And I think the, the, the people's appetite for this particular set of facts and also a certain amount of speculation, that influenced the coverage. And uh, I think, I think uh, Girth, Girth is right about that. The decision to publish the dossier was incredibly consequential. Uh, and it led, it led to all kinds of ripple effects in uh, Trump psychology, Trump's relationship with the FBI. And uh, it's kind of insane that that document was ever taken seriously by anyone. Now, at the same time, I don't think the Gertz story says that the the Russiagate thing was a total scam. I certainly don't think it was. I mean, the Klimek Manafort meeting is very concerning and pretty inappropriate and pretty shocking that you would have the head of a major candidate's presidential campaign having a private off-the-books meeting with a guy who, you know, is alleged at least to have links to Russian intelligence and is handing him internal data. That really happened, and that 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 is not good. Also, the DNC hacks, which, you know, are alleged to have been done by Russian intelligence. Those had a real impact. I know that there are people who would probably disagree with me about this, but I was at the DNC in 2016 
the Bernie people were really mad because of material in those hacks. And those hacks really did kind of fuck up the convention and change the tone for the rest of the race. So when people say, oh, you know, Russia only spent this small amount of money on Facebook ads, they didn't really get that many impressions. They're sort of ignoring the the hack and leak component of it that I think I think really did have a big impact. Yeah, you know, actually, I mean, I, I do agree that the, the hack and leak component was much more consequential than some of the other stuff they're talking about, especially like the social media operations, which got a lot of press. Because, you know, I think, you know, once you solve the mystery of uh, like what these foreign influence operations did on social media, you haven't yet solved the mystery of like what the ultimate like consequence or what the ultimate result is, because that's that's a separate question. And, you know, at first glance, you know, it seems like in 2016, like these, uh, these operations were like massively influential. I'm thinking of one Twitter account specifically, it was called 10 GOP. I think it was like the biggest, most famous one. It was run out of the Internet Research Agency and uh, it got over 100,000 followers. It was retweeted by uh, people in Trump world like uh, Kellyanne Conway, Michael Flynn. It wound up even uh, getting mentioned by a bunch of mainstream outlets as if it was a legitimate account. You know, but more broadly, there was a recent study published in the journal Nature, which concluded that Russian Twitter accounts didn't really affect how people voted. Now, that study is called Exposure to the Russian Internet Research Agency for an Influence campaign on Twitter in the 2016 U.S. election and its relationship to attitudes and voting behavior. It found that Russian influence operations on Twitter in that uh, election reached relatively few users, most of whom were highly partisan Republicans, and the Russian accounts had no measurable impact in changing minds or influencing voter behavior. So, you know, that's just one platform. It doesn't uh, take into account, for example, Facebook, which is a much uh, larger platform. And um, man, I think I think the fa- the Facebook operations were kind of more interesting. That one of my favorite stories about Russian influence in the 2016 election is that two Russian-run Facebook pages organized competing rallies outside of an Islamic center in Houston. So there was a uh, Russian-controlled Facebook group called Heart of Texas that advertised a rally to stop Islamification of Texas in May of 2016, and there was a separate Russian-sponsored group called United Muslims of America, which advertised a Save Islamic Knowledge rally for the same place and time. And sure enough, there was uh, two competing protests on that day. So, I mean, I would disagree with anyone who argues that the impact of like these operations is zero, but it's just, according to this study, at least on Twitter, the internet research agency mostly succeeded in creating more content for the right-wing echo chamber. Now, obviously it's not easy to determine the impact of like social media campaigns, but what do you think is the ultimate result of, you know, these kinds of campaigns conducted by internet research agency and social CMS? So when we think about the impact of this Russian influence operations, we also know the Russians were like probing voter rolls and voter systems. And I think one, you know, one scenario I've heard, you know, from from smart folks is that maybe they wanted to be discovered doing this. Maybe all they wanted to do was call into question the legitimacy of the democratic process and the legitimacy ultimately of, of well, tr- Trump won. But then but a lot of people still don't accept that that was true. And then you get an even you know, sort of bigger echo of that in, in, in 2024, or in, I'm sorry, in 2020, where you've got, you know, Trump folks just just making stuff up about the result. But I think the biggest impact of, of the 2016 operation was really leaving this question of Trump's legitimacy unsettled. So many people had so much vested in Clinton winning. So many important, powerful people uh, knew what how they would benefit and what their next job would be. And those people all needed a story that they could agree on for why Trump had not won on the merits. 
and Russia provided a way to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that there was no there there. That doesn't mean that there wasn't an internet research agency, but it does explain uh, why this narrative caught fire and was so, you know, instantly adopted by a very diverse and, and vocal group that suddenly found themselves cast out of power and, and, and was angry about it. One thing that really influenced my thinking about these influence operations came from a New York Times report published in September of last year. It was on these operations that attempted to create divisions in the Women's March movement. And it, that report included a passage that I think articulated the challenges of assessing these kinds of operations. Now, could you read this for me, Jake? It is maddeningly difficult to say with any certainty what effect Russian influence operations have had on the United States, because when they took hold, they piggybacked on real social divisions. Once pumped into American discourse, the Russian trace vanishes like water that has been added to a swimming pool. This creates a conundrum for disinformation specialists, many of whom say the impact of Russian interventions has been overblown. After the 2016 presidential election, blaming unwelcome outcomes on Russia became, quote, the emotional way out, said Thomas Ridd, author of Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. It's playing a trick on you, said Dr. Ridd, a professor at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. You've become a useful idiot if you ignore effective info ops, but also if you talk it up by telling a story, if you make it more powerful than it is, it's a trick. I thought that was really interesting because I think a lot of well, well-meaning people act as if caution or skepticism or even nuance about the impact of influence operations, uh, foreign influence operations, is equivalent to covering for them, as if you're helping these disinformation or division campaigns by suggesting that they might not be the only reason that half the country voted for Donald Trump. But here is like the guy who literally wrote the book on Russian active measures saying that if you overstate their effectiveness, then really you're the one who are helping the Russians because uh, you, you're helping people think that these campaigns are massively successful, regardless of how successful they are in reality, because, you know, really it just furthers their goal of sowing this paranoia and division. I guess, what do you think about like, you know, what, what comes with the risk of like, you know, exaggerating the effectiveness of these campaigns? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think he makes a good point. There's a certain risk there. And I think, you know, it, it, how are you ever going to be able to, there's sort of this, this sort of uh, ideal of, you know, what a, pre, a U.S. presidential campaign would be like in, in the absence of a globalized media environment where you had an impenetrable firewall where no one who is not a U.S. citizen, their opinion would somehow be automatically silenced because of its provenance. But we're, we're never going to, if, if, if that were ever true in the past, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get back there. I mean, it's like, I think the swimming pool analogy is, is exactly right. So this is just something, I mean, people are going to have to get smarter somehow and, and, you know, about this or they're, or, or they're just going to make, you know, dumb decisions on the basis of the information that's been spoon fed to them by whoever's holding the spoon and trying to you know, litigate. I mean, I think I think the way. Let me say this. I think the way this um, Prigozhin Mexico operation was handled by the FBI was actually pretty smart. They shut it down before the election, before it got too big, without a lot of hullabaloo. They didn't say we've caught the giant Russian influence operation. They just noted it very briefly in like the 16th paragraph of some ODNI report that came out later, and then Facebook noted it in this like internal report. But they, they took it down, but they also didn't make too big a deal of it, which is which is kind of a, a happy medium. I mean, I think I think, you know, in, in 2016, I think the surprise of Trump's victory 
you know, coincided with this huge worry inside the Obama administration that they hadn't done enough beforehand um, because they did know that it was going on. But they but then and then there was this temptation. I mean, James Clapp, General James Clapper says this in his memoir. I mean, a lot of people think a lot of people put their flag in the ground and said that the Russian interference was decisive in 2016. And if you if, 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 if that's your view, then you you as a consequence, you don't think Trump's like a legitimate president. And that that leads to all of these all these knock on effects. So I think the surprise of Trump's victory and the discovery of that there was a Russian influence operation, you know, led to kind of like this almost like perfect storm in, in 2016 that we still haven't found our way back from. Right. Like it's way better that there were a overwhelming amount of people that looked at Donald Trump and said, yes, that's who I want to be president. Yes. And then it happened, you know, despite all all of the coverage sort of, you know, essentially saying, that you, you know, this is a slam dunk for Hillary Clinton, you know, moving beyond that, it's much easier to go like, well, of course, he never would have won if it hadn't been for all of these illegal sort of operations. That's a it's way easier to hold on to than like, oh, my candidate, like maybe didn't campaign as good as they should have or, uh, you know, or or our country is that fucked up that they're willing to put somebody like Donald Trump in office. Yeah, no, no, I think, yeah, no, it's a, it's an easy, just putting it on the Russians is an, it's a, it's an easy way to avoid looking at the questions that you're raising there. You made a really good point about the DNC hack and how in a lot of ways, you know, that did a lot of damage because people saw internal messages from the campaign, that stuff, you know, ended up in Pizzagate, it got baked into, uh, you know, into what ultimately became QAnon down the line. Uh, it also showed that the, the Clinton campaign and the DNC at large were, you know, uh, uh, essentially uh, sabotaging maybe is the hard word, but sabotaging the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah, getting the um, whole, the whole, getting the AP to call it early. Yeah. That was, I think there was more on that in the emails too. And that was, that was, that yeah. was a little funny. Um, but, so no, I'm sorry. Go, yeah. What, go on. So my question was, is what always like really weirded me out. And I, it might just be because I don't understand how, how this stuff works, but I always thought it was weird that the DNC, you know, because if that was yes, indeed a Russian hacker, then that would amount to massive Russian, that would be a thing that came from Russian hackers or some kind of order from the Kremlin that I think did have a substantial impact on, you know, your voting population. So that's why I always thought it was very strange that, uh, the you know, the DNC rebuffed you know, the request from the FBI to actually get their hands on the servers. There was this whole uh, right-wing narrative that was, you know, the DNC had hired this third-party uh, analyst, uh, CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike, yeah. And that because CrowdStrike, you know, because they were the ones who only got their hands on the server, you know, they doubted whether, you know, the hack actually had come from from Russia. I mean, I don't know if it matters who actually did the hack and then leaked it, because I think the results were the same. But am I wrong did, did we ever get any more information about that, that the FBI or law enforcement did actually get the servers and, and could verify that it was, in fact, a, a Russian source, Guccifer 2.0 or whatever? No, this is like a great question. And let me just like, if I can jump back for a second. Please. Just because Jim Jordan is talking about something doesn't mean necessarily that we shouldn't pay attention to it. I think this is a common fallacy among reasonable people. So things like Fusion GPS and also uh, gain-of-function research with, um, you know, with the origin of COVID. These are things that uh, are worth obsessing about. They also happen to be things that Jim Jordan is obsessing about. And, and they're, they're worthy of scrutiny. Uh, and just because unserious people happen to be scrutinizing them, that doesn't 
invalidate the the the, the proposition that, 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 that we're thinking about. And in terms of, but, but you you asked specifically about CrowdStrike. This is something I flagged too. I have never had the chance to go deep on. Do we know that the Russians hacked the DNC for sure, or was it just random hackers? My understanding is that does indeed hang on CrowdStrike's assessment, and CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike was being paid by the DNC. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there are people who have been charged by the Department of Justice who are from the GRU with doing this hack, if I remember right. But that that doesn't make it true either. So did the Russian government hack the DNC? I mean, probably. Do I know for sure? I don't feel like I do. And it, it, it's the sort of thing I think you're right that I'd love to see someone go deep on and, and, and ask, well, how do we how do we really know that, that that's who's behind this? Now, there's also this sort of like that can be taken too far with the whole sort of like just asking questions. Mm hmm. Or tying it to the Seth Ridge murder, right. which is really what what it was done in conspiracy circles. That information was used to to connect this leak to Seth Rich. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, you, no, you're completely you're completely right. So, like, at what point? I mean, that's one thing that's so hard. You know that I think that your your show is about too. At some point, you have to trust someone. You can't if you if, if you're just totally skeptical of everything and are, are always looking for someone's, you know, past connections to sort of, you know, uh, invalidate what they say on some ad hominem basis, you're just going to, you're just going to wind up nowhere and believe that nothing at all is true. Mm. And in order to like develop some sort of like operating, understand how the world works, you actually, you have to pick, <laughs> you yeah. have to pick, okay, these are, this is the set of evidence from this set of people who like, I'm going to believe, but it's, it's really hard, especially when you see things going on, like, you know, like the, the way the COVID origin narrative has changed, the way the uh, Trump is a Russian agent, quote unquote, narrative, you know, has, has changed. It just, you know, it's, it's not, there's no clear roadmap for, for, you know, who you should be getting stuff from on any particular issue. It's extremely risky and it's a, it's a huge, the whole process is a huge headache. And I don't blame anyone who just wants to throw up their hands and, and be like, I don't want any, <laughs> any part of this. The Kalimnik one, it's funny, the, the, the Manafort Kalimnik thing, that's the one, for some reason, I really, I've really taken the stand that Kalimnik is some kind of Russian agent or has ties to Russian intelligence. But why have I done that? I guess I believe it's true. It's, I mean, our government has said that it's true, uh, but I ping them and they won't, they don't explain how or why that they think it's true. And, and you know, I wish they would. But yeah, no, no, I mean, it's, it's hard to escape the the possibility that like Manafort and and sort of McGonagall that there's not a, not necessarily like a big difference there it could just be guys meeting with you know other guys trying to do some kind of deal and, and, and there could be nothing more to it than that it's just really 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 hard to know and they might not even know in the moment I mean that's kind of how it's different from the spy version movie is that I think you know when these relationships are unfolding in real time and there's a lot of there's a lot of ambiguity about who's recruiting who who's working for who you know and both sides are kind of feeling the other out yeah. and then the you know and then you can kind of like put a frame around it and call it a conspiracy in retrospect based on on stuff that happens later thanks so much for coming on the show Matt where can people find your work so folks can find my work at a Business Insider, um, that's businessinsider.com. And I also you know, have written a series of profiles of senior officials for the New York Times Magazine, um, where I you know, sit down and talk to these guys for you know, an hour, hour and a half or so. Um, you can go back and look at those. There's uh, Bill Barr, James Clapper, that one was for GQ. John Brennan, that's probably my favorite one of these. And uh, Mike Pompeo, 
Uh, and then I also give a soup to nuts account of Comey and Trump and their, their face off. But Business Insider is where uh, I work. It's where I'm writing about McGonagall. And you can also follow my tweets at Schwartz-esque. That's just Schwartz, E-S-Q-U-E. Thanks for listening to another episode of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and sub for five bucks a month to get a whole second episode for every main one, plus access to our entire archive of premium episodes. There are over 200 of them. And of course, access to our ongoing past and future series, like Trickle Down, like Man Clan, like the unnamed series uh, that Brad and Jake are working on. And uh, if, if you are already a subscriber, thanks so much. It helps us stay advertising free and editorially independent. For everything else, we've got a website, QAnonAnonymous.com. Listener, until next week, may the mechanicals bless you and deep... Wait. <laughs> and deep you? And deep you. And, and deep you. And deep you. And deep you. No, I think that's good. That's it. <laughs> Final take. Good. Perfect. Who cares, right? I mean, Who cares? Deep you? Who cares? Deep you? All right, I'll do it good. I don't give a shit. No. No, this is all in. If you want to keep talking, I mean, we can have this last longer at the end of the episode, but this is way funnier than you getting it right, so it's a jewel. <laughs> this is a jewel. Bless you and keep you. There's it right for the editor, uh, just mm. in case. Loser. Sneak it in at the last. Yeah. It's not a conspiracy. It's fact. And now, today's auto cue. The FBI guy after me for the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, long before my election as president, was just arrested for taking money from Russia, Russia, Russia. May he rot in hell. <laughs>